So we're going to pray uh, that God would work. We're going to pray that God would work in our midst here today. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going verse by verse through Mark, by the way. And we've kind of branded little sections uh, based on the themes that are happening. We just finished a section called Jesus is Stronger. And we're going to start a new section today. Uh, and we're going to gear it towards fathers on this specific day. But uh, our plan is to go all the way through Mark. So if you want to study with us, you can just keep going verse by verse through Mark. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the scriptures. Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the families that we've seen up here today. Thank you for our fathers. I pray there wouldn't be one father here today that leaves without a relationship with you. I pray if there's anybody, maybe they're just a guest because some child was getting dedicated that they have some relationship with, maybe a grandchild or friend or whatever. I pray you'd save them today. And I pray for those of us who know you, that you'd speak to our hearts, that we wouldn't go through the motions of church or some religious ceremonies or just thinking thoughts about you, but that we would grow in depth of you, that we would encounter you, that we'd be changed by you. I pray for, for those that that maybe aren't fathers, and their fathers passed away, and there's not a father in their life, but you've got a word for them today. God, will you speak even through these words? Will you pierce our hearts with your word? God, don't let us be the same. Please change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, today being Father's Day, I really do mean it when I say happy Father's Day, but dads, I want you to feel the weight of what it means to be a father. It's not just warm, fuzzy, like we're glad you're here today. Way to go, you. Uh, you had a baby. I want you to know what your responsibility is. And so I read earlier when I was talking to those, those different families that were up here to dedicate their children, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and talked about discipling our kids and always having the word before us. But I want you to see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. He says this, fathers. Notice it doesn't say parents. It doesn't say mom. Now I realize there are some moms here. You're single moms. You have to do the role of both mom and dad. And I hope God gives you a special anointing of grace and strength for that. But the passage says, fathers, and then the command is to you, dads, do not exasperate your children, which my wife pulls half of this verse out on me sometimes when I'm messing with our kids and we're riding in our minivan. And I always point out the next part is the key. I can pick on my kids, but I still got to train them up in the Lord. But instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The way you exasperate your children, dads, is by not teaching them what it is to live by faith. It's not just by teasing them about something they said or, you know, whatever. When you fail to teach them what it is to live by faith, You've failed to meet this commandment. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, like I told those families earlier, none of us are going to do it perfect. But I want to say to all of our dads here who are trying, thank you. And you mess up. And you'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time or won't respond the right way in some moment. Some situation, you won't be sensitive enough. You'll be too harsh or you won't be harsh enough. You'll be too easy. I totally get all that. But thank you for trying. Each one of us today, even though those of you who are not a father, all of us think of fathers on this day. And that might be a good memory, it might be a bad memory, but we all have them. And maybe it's something dad used to say, like he had his catchy saying or his cliches, or because you're in this family, this is how you behave, or some place that you maybe used to go with him. Maybe you'll drive by an ice cream shop today and think, damn, my dad really loved ice cream, or there's some fragrance you'll smell, or something will happen. We all think about our dads today, and let me tell you why, because every dad leaves a legacy. In fact, every person leaves a legacy, and sometimes we think about that when somebody passes away. You know, recently Prince passed away, and so it was all over the news, the music he made, and what his beliefs were, and all that kind of stuff, and Muhammad Ali passed away, and called himself the greatest of all time, so think about the great and all that kind of stuff, and talk about him, and then, and then also recently, O.J. Simpson, who hasn't passed away yet, his story came out, Made in America, and so he's got his own legacy, and there's good legacies, there's bad leg- legacies, right? But we all have a legacy. The question for us is, what kind of legacy will we leave? And as I was thinking about legacies this week, I was reading some obituaries, which I know sounds like a morbid thing to do, but a lot of times that's where you, how does someone remembered? Is what did other people say about them? And I wanted to share an excerpt of a few of them just to get you to think of the types of things that people say 
when someone passes away, and what are they going to say about you? This guy's name was Raymond Allen Brownlee. They called him Big Al. And Big Al's obituary. He talked about people he left behind and family members and all that stuff and jobs that he had, but it said this. He despised canned cranberry sauce. <laughs> all right. And he also despised wearing shorts. He despised cigarette butts in his driveway. He despised oatmeal. He despised loudmouth know-it-alls. He despised Tabasco sauce. This guy didn't like a lot of stuff. He despised reality TV shows and anything with the Kardashians. <laughs> I those one on the same, but anyway. He was known for his timeless words of wisdom, including, and here's one of his pithy sayings. You know how maybe you think of your dad and stuff that he used to say all the time? Here's one of this guy, Big Al sayings. Life is hard, but it's harder if you're stupid. <laughs> Pearls of wisdom I'm throwing out here right now. He was also known as the squirrel whisperer. He communicated with the local red-tailed squirrels and fed them peanuts with his hand. That is Big Al's legacy. There's a guy from Lumberton, North Carolina, named Richard Norton Bacon. They called him Rick Bacon. Um, they said that Rick has left the building when, in the beginning of his uh, obituary, which I thought was an interesting way to talk about it. Um, he went on to talk about how he loved dogs. He graduated without honors uh, in his high school, without honors. I thought it was interesting they pointed out. <laughs> And it said that he loved the Cincinnati Reds. Now, he, was from, he lived in Lumberton, North Carolina. And, now, and he loved the Cincinnati Reds. And then one of his famous sayings I thought was interesting, he said, there's no explaining taste. <laughs> Which isn't that true. You like what you like. James Groth, another guy, I think he wrote his own obituary because I, I have never seen one that seems so sarcastic, actually. And Jim made his last wildly inappropriate and probably sarcastic comment on July 28th. <laughs> was that like he handed it to his wife, like fill in the date? Jim was born and immediately dubbed our favorite child by his parents, giving his siblings a hard time. He continues to go on through his obituary, and he talks about how now that he, now he's met his demise, was the language that was used, they can step out from amongst his shadow. He said, a variety of nieces and nephews with mediocre upbringing. It's like he keeps poking his siblings, like in his obituary when I read it. Um, could now live on his memories, tell his stories. And he goes on and he talks about volunteering and the jobs that he had and some of those things. But he said he had, he talks about regrets. Sometimes we remember by our regrets. He says, his regrets were few, but include eating a rotisserie hot dog from a convenience store in the summer of 2002. Which I'll just let you know, eating anything from a gas station is always a bad idea. Now, Pastor Brad will probably post something on Facebook later. Sheets is awesome. He thinks it's great. It's okay. Pastor Brad's wrong sometimes. That's what happens. We're all remembered for something. We all have a legacy of some sort that we leave. We might not be famous like Muhammad Ali. We might not be famous like Prince. We might not be famous like some of these people. But everybody leaves a legacy. And the evidence is we all, whether Dad's still here or not, you have memory. You think of things when you think of him. The question is, what kind of legacy will we leave? Now it's fine to hate cranberry sauce. And it's fine to love sports, the Reds, or whoever it is that you love. Some people would disagree that it's fine to love the Reds. But it's fine to love whatever team you love. But let me say this. If that's all people have to say about you, if all they have to say is, you are a Wolfpack fan, that means you had zero eternal impact. If all they have to say is that you could hit a little white ball down the fairway, 250, 300 yards straight, you had zero eternal impact. If all they can say is you were good at barbecue, or that you had some little pithy sayings, or you could you know, strip a weapon and hunt a deer, if all they can say are those things, they're not bad things by themselves, that's all they can say, that means you had zero eternal impact impact. We're all going to leave a legacy. The question is, what kind of legacy will you leave? And if you are responsible before God for discipling your children, then the only way you're going to leave an eternal legacy is if you live a life of faith. 
Now, that's true for all of us. I'm talking to you, dads. If you're going to leave a legacy that has any eternal significance, you must live a life of faith. And so the question we're going to ask ourselves today is this. Will you leave a legacy of faith? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. I invite you to turn with me. I hope you brought a copy of the Bible with you. Mark chapter 6. If you didn't bring him a copy of the Bible, do you want one? We've got a, some free copies over there on that table, so you can go ahead and go grab them while I'm just telling you what's going on here. What happens in Mark chapter 6 is broken into different sections. Lord willing, we're going to cover 30 verses today. The first six verses show us what a failure of faith looks like, a life that lacks faith. The next verse seven through the second part of verse six through uh, verse thirty tell us what a life of faith looks like. It tells us people who do it, gives us an example of it, and implications of it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, what's happened up until this point? I mentioned a little bit earlier that we had just finished a series called "Jesus is Stronger," and what's been happening is that Jesus has been showing his sovereign strength over everything that happens on this earth. And so all the way back to chapter 3, he shows us he's stronger than the strong, strong man. Talking about Satan. That's our enemy. He's stronger than the enemy. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He's got, whether you want to acknowledge that he exists or not, he does. And he has an impact in this world. But Jesus is stronger, so we can trust Jesus. We saw that Jesus is stronger than the storms of life. When he says, to the wind and the waves, shh, wind, shh, waves. Who is this? Which is the question of Mark. Who is this Jesus guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then he goes on and he comfort, there's a woman in suffering that she can't deal with her issue and doctors haven't been able to help her for 12 years and just with the touch of his robe, she's healed, he's stronger than suffering. But that was just a little parenthetical story amongst Jesus showing that he's actually stronger than death. And we know that Jesus is stronger than death not just because he raised a 12-year-old girl in the passage we read last week because Jesus himself was raised from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? And if Jesus is stronger than death, we can trust him with anything, Right? So two people believe that. All right. But what you'd expect to happen next, after all that happens, wouldn't it make sense that there's like a revival where people would just fall down at the feet of Jesus and say, I can trust you with my whole life. Here's my, here's my wallet. Here's my time. Here's my life. Just take it. I trust you. But what we see is the opposite of that. Instead of revival, it's like a faith desert. They totally lack faith. It's a failure of faith. It's like, a neat, like the faith depletion zone when he goes to his hometown. Look at it in chapter 6. That's what it looks like, a life that lacks faith. Jesus left there, the home of Jairus and his daughter, and accompanied by his disciples, and so he's got his 12 disciples now. When the Sabbath came, this is his custom, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. There's a lot of amazing things about this passage. The passage, verses 1 through 6, a dual amazement. Jesus is going to be amazed in a little bit. They're amazed at him right now. One of the amazing things is if you study this passage, this is not the first time Jesus has been to Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, you can read that on your own, on your own time. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has already been to Nazareth, and he opened up the scroll from Isaiah that prophesies about the Messiah, and he says, God's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to preach the year of the Lord's Jubilee, and he's declaring himself, I am the Savior of the world. I've come to redeem you from your sins. I'm going to preach good news to you. I'm the one that's going to solve your spiritual problem that no one else can solve, that you sin. You don't sin at sin. is that we do our own thing, that we think we know better than God, that we know what's right. We rebel against God, and everyone does it. It's not even offensive to say you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But Jesus died for that sin. He's telling these people he came to die for their sin. You know what they do? They try to kill him. You read it, Luke chapter 4. And so my question, what's amazing to me is, you're back. Why are you back here? Why are you back in your hometown? And here's why. Because Jesus is the God of second chances. And you may have rejected him before. He gives you a second chance. 
You maybe look back on your life, there was a time when you were close to him, but that seems like a long time ago. He'll give you a second chance. I don't know your story, but he's teaching here, and maybe it was the teaching, his grace that he was teaching about that was so amazing to them. They start off good. They're amazed at his teaching. And then they say, where did this man get these things? They asked. That's a fair question. What is this wisdom that's been given to him? He even does miracles. It's fair questions. But then it starts to go downhill. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Like we know, we know he's just like us. Like he's not special. He's a carpenter. And and to say that he's Mary's son, it was Jewish custom that you would use the father's name. This is perhaps an insult to Jesus. It's not just a questioning of. It's like insulting. And maybe they're bringing up the the rumor that he had an illegitimate birth. Isn't this Mary's son? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, we know those guys. And his sis, aren't his sisters here with us? We know these people. Which, by the way, too, this actually clearly teaches that the Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity is not true because here's his half-brothers and sisters. But these people are saying, we know these people. They're just like us. And they took offense at him. Verse 4 Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. This is one of several places where Jesus says, he says this more than once, it's a proverbial statement. Jesus made it famous. It's, it's, they're so familiar with it, they take them for granted. And some of you have maybe done that before. You Somebody special in your life or something that's special in your life and you, and you get so used to it, you don't realize what a blessing it is, how amazing it is. So they started off, they're amazed at Jesus, but now they're offended by Jesus and Jesus says, only in his hometown. Like there's been other places and it's never been this bad. And then verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands, lay his hands. So he did a few miracles there. His hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So here we have in this passage dual amazement. It starts off, they're amazed at his teaching. And then it goes to, he's amazed at their lack of faith. There are only two times in the Bible when Jesus is amazed. Both of them have to do with faith. There's this passage and there's Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, he's amazed at a man who has incredible faith. He's never seen faith like this in all of Israel because the guy believes that Jesus doesn't even have to come to his house to do a healing. He can just say a word. And here Jesus is with these people who he loves, who he knows. They've been his neighbors for 30 years. You think about the miracles that he would do in their presence, but because he's amazed at their lack of faith, he doesn't do these miracles because here's the reality. A life that lacks faith lacks the movement, oftentimes lacks the movement of God. A life that lacks faith often lacks the movement or the miracles or the power or the activity of God. And so you think about the things that Jesus has done up until this point, and then he comes here and verse 5 says he didn't do any miracles, but then he gives a, a disclaimer. But there's a couple miracles. Like there's a couple people maybe that had faith that came to him and he healed a few sick people, laid hands on a few people, but he wasn't doing the miracles. Not like when he was calming the storm, not like when he was raising the dead, not the miracles he could have done because of their lack of faith. And you think about it when we talk about legacies. I've probably all been to a funeral before where you hear people and everybody's got an anecdotal story. Like there's some funny story about somebody's life. Everybody's got some story that's, you know, sentimental of some sort. And everybody tells those stories. But you get to some where it's like you can tell the faith was real anemic if there was any at all. So they'll say things like, well, he was spiritual, not religious. And he was real private about that, but he was confirmed at this age. Let me tell you what usually that means. It usually means they're in hell. There was no faith. But we want to bring up something because we all know that we're at the end now. So what next? And we all have stories. 
We all have some story that somebody can tell. And maybe it's eating a hot dog at a convenience store back in 2002 and there was regrets from it. And there's some like story that you have, maybe you're on vacation, you got lost or something happened. The, a story that has stuck with me. I told it to our church and, and I don't know why, but it's the one, like I've told lots of stories. This one gets brought up. I told it like eight or nine years ago about one time I was trying to mow my lawn when I first got married, didn't know anything about the lawnmower. I caught the lawnmower on fire. It shows I'm a moron, okay? We all know. Let's just get it out there and just state it. I'm me- mechanically incompetent. And so I catch this lawnmower on fire. So my family will bring it up sometimes. Every once in a while somebody comes up to me in the lobby, <laughs> you got a lawnmower on fire. I was like, what the, I didn't talk about that at all today. What are you talking about? Just our story. We all have stories, right? Like you have stories, I have stories, we all have stories. The question is, do you have any God stories? Because these people, they all have stories. But what an opportunity here to have a God story. Jesus, God in the flesh, is standing in your presence. And because of your lack of faith, it lacks the movement of God. It's all set up. It's teed up to be a revival. But because of their lack of faith, they lack the miracles. They lack the power of God. And so I want to ask you this question. Do you have, any, do you have the God stories? Not do you have stories, because we all have stories. But do you have stories of like, you're on your face in prayer, fathers. I'm asking you, dad, you're on your face, prostrate in your living room or in your bedroom, praying to God, and then he answers. And it's clear that he's the one that answered. It's not, hey, I need a little bit of money for a meal, and I told my friend, and then I prayed about it, and my friend gave me some money. No, it's like God just showed up, and it's clear it was God. You got those stories? Or you prayed, and God didn't answer, but he gave you the strength and the faith to endure through it, which is also the story of God showing up, because you couldn't have done it on your own. Or stories of provision, or you didn't know how or who or what or what, but God just did something. And it's a, it's a God story. And when I'm talking about the movement of God, I'm talking about things that God does that only God can do. And do you have stories of that in your life? Because those who live by faith have those stories. Those who don't live by faith, do you have stories of deliverance? Do you have stories of healing? Like the doctors can't explain it. They don't know how it happened. It's just, this is what, this is what happened. You have stories of provision. You have stories of salvation, like people that you prayed for, somebody that you love, fathers. You, have, you tell your kids and your family, like, pray for this coworker. I'm trying to share the gospel with them. Pray for this neighbor. Here's my one. Pray for, this, pray for grandma and grandpa, like somebody you know that doesn't know Jesus, and you prayed for them, and then they came to know Jesus. Or you shared the gospel with them, and they rejected the gospel, rejected you, but you were faithful. Those are both God's stories. So we all have stories. But do you have God's stories? Because we're talking to dads about discipling your kids. Think like in Joshua, in Joshua 3 and 4, another assignment you can read on your own. Joshua 3 and 4, in the Old Testament, what they do is they lay stones down when there were significant stories. They crossed the Jordan and says, lay stones down here. Why? So that when you come by these stones and the kids say, what are these stones for? Let me tell you what God did. Do you have those stories? If you don't have those stories, then do you lack faith? Let me tell you something. Lacking faith always has consequences. And here, we saw the consequences are clear. You mean to tell me there weren't people here with great needs? I'm sure they had needs. But then verse 5 says, He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. The miracles that could have been done here that weren't done because of their lack of faith, that's the consequences. When you lack faith, there's always a consequence. You see it all through the Bible. Think of any of those of you who are familiar with the Bible. Think of all the Bible stories you know where somebody lacked faith. And then what were the consequences? Classic story, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. Adam held accountable because the leader of his family... Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat the fruit. Eve took it first, but Adam's held accountable. And then what's the result? The result is a curse for all of mankind because of a failure of faith. They thought they knew better than God. They didn't trust God. And so they didn't obey the commands. Go to Numbers, the book of Numbers. 
So I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to go into the promised land. But there's giants there. Because of their lack of faith, an entire generation misses out on the blessings of God. You want a Father's Day story? Read the story of Achan. You want to know whether dad's held accountable in a unique way? Achan sins. His whole family suffers the wrath of God because he thinks he can hide stuff from God. Lack of faith. You think God doesn't know? You keep reading through the Bible and you keep seeing these stories that when people lack faith, there's always consequences. But the biggest consequence, Jesus talks about in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 24, he says this, I told you that you would die in your sins. Because here's the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is that we're all going to die in our sins. It's not just a rejecting Christ causes us to go to hell. No, everybody's already on their way to hell. What happens is when God sends his son, Jesus Christ, he's giving you an opportunity to avoid that wrath. He's giving you, there's a way out. There is a way, and it's Jesus Christ. And so he says, I told you you're all going to die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins. The consequence for rejecting Jesus Christ is hell. A failure of faith always has consequences. Because the way that faith works, it's, it's a gift that God gives us and he does a work through that gift. See, we're saved by grace. The fact that he offers a way, the fact that he gives us an opportunity. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says this, you are saved by grace, notice the word before the main word, by grace through faith. In other words, faith's like a conduit through which God works. It's like a uh, the, Charles Spurgeon says an aqueduct. It's like the God's blessing flows through the faith. It's a means. So if you think about that, it's like something must be blocking it here. Something's wrong. It's like I think about it in my kitchen. I'm not a Mr. Fix-It. See lawnmower story from previous sermon. But I want to tell you something. Some of you guys aren't dads yet. When you become a dad, everyone expects that you can fix everything. Okay? That's just what takes place. In my house, if something goes bad, no one looks at my 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> No one's looking at my wife. You know, everybody looks at me like, you're the dad. You should just know how to fix stuff. I'm like, why is that? That skill didn't come when we left the hospital. Like, what are you talking about? But they all expect it. And, my, and legend has it, legend that can't be verified, has it that my wife's dad could fix everything. That's been a topic of conversation in our house. <laughs> and so the other day, uh, a couple months ago, I think it was, the sink got plugged up in the kitchen. And I had my initial, th- I'm good at calling people <laughs> to fix things. I'm not real good at fixing them. The initial thought was, man, why does this, why does he, I just wish it would go away, was like my thought. There's a bunch of nasty stuff in our kitchen sink. And so I grab a wrench, because I don't want to call a plumber. Like, they just charge you just to show up, so I don't want to call a plumber. I grab a wrench. Plumbers use wrenches. That's what I know. So I get underneath the sink. I start taking stuff apart. Water starts coming around different places. But I take this one pipe off, and I pull out of it what looks like a banana. We have kids. They did not shove a banana down there. Somebody somebody put grease down the sink and it solidified in the pipe and it was blocking everything from going through. If faith is a conduit, what's blocking? You don't have those stories in your life. Maybe it's a hard heart. Maybe it's sin. Do you know what's really interesting what it was when you look at this passage? You go back, look at those questions they're asking. Isn't this the carpenter? We know him. Isn't this Mary's son? We know his family. It was their familiarity with Jesus that stopped them from knowing Jesus. Well, isn't that the American church? We think we know Jesus is the very thing that stops us from knowing Jesus. You've heard the statement before, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, how many people you hear, you, oh, they were baptized, they were confirmed, they went to church, they know these verses. They, but is God working in their lives? 
And you wonder if it's you or not. Maybe you're thinking about some other person. Do you ever hear the stories of God and think, well, I know that story. I'm good. I know that verse. You lose the wonder of your own salvation. You sing the songs, just kind of going through the motions. It's familiarity. It's a dangerous place. It was the familiarity with Jesus, the very thing that was stopping them from having faith in Jesus. And so then they lacked the activity, the movement of God in their lives. And by the way, it wasn't that Jesus wanted to do miracles and he just couldn't do it. Like, oh, I really wish I could do some miracles here in Nazareth, but your lack of faith stopped. Here's the deal. He just raised a girl from the dead. Let me tell you how much faith she had. Zero. She was dead. He doesn't need your faith to do a miracle. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But he's not going to do miracles just to put on a show. He's not going to do it just to impress them. In fact, his failure to do miracles here is actually an act of mercy by Jesus. Because to whom much is given, much is required. If he does, They've already rejected him. They've decided they're done with his person. When Jesus does miracles, all through Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, anywhere you read the miracles, he's doing them to point people to himself. So a lot of times you see him say, don't tell anybody. He doesn't just want a show. He wants a relationship. These people have already rejected a relationship. If he does more miracles, guess what? There's going to be more judgment on them. Hell's going to be worse for them. So it's not that Jesus was unable to do miracles. He chose not to do miracles there. Like Matthew says, the way he phrases it in his version of this story is he says this, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mark says it in such a brash way. He says he couldn't do miracles there. But then he says, there's a couple of miracles that he did. He could do miracles. It wasn't his inability. He's not going to do them just to show off. He's not a magician. He's not your genie. He is the Savior, and he wants a relationship with you. And any of the stuff that he's doing in your life is to draw you closer to him and to bring glory to himself through your life. So do you have those stories? The movement of God in your life. Those who lack faith lack the movement of God. We're all going to leave a legacy. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? If you're going to leave a legacy of faith, you must live a life of faith. And here's the thing about those who live a life of faith. If you live a life of faith, then your faith can be seen. That's our second point. To live a life of faith, you must have a faith that can be seen. It's foreign to the Bible to have a faith that's just it's private. No one knows about my faith. I'm a person of faith, but I just keep it to myself. Here's the reality. Your relationship with Jesus is personal. Every one of us, it's personal. For anyone who has a genuine relationship with Jesus, for none of us, it's private. A relationship with Jesus is personal. It is not private. And so what we see next is faith and practice. You want to see what a life of faith looks like? Look what happens next. The end of verse 6 says that Jesus starts going around to all the different towns. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Then verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two. And he gave them authority over evil spirits. And so back in chapter 3, when he calls them, he said, I'm going to send you out. You're going to preach, preach the gospel of repentance. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. It was a Jewish custom. Many devout Jews, when they would come back to the Holy Land, would shake the dust off their feet to get that pagan dust off their feet. When Jesus is saying, show these people they're acting like pagans, they reject me. Verse 12. They went out and they did it. They obeyed. That's how you see faith. They preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. 
which is amazing. And then it goes on and gives this little next section that we'll talk about. And, and then it tells in verse 30 the wrap-up of the whole deal. But they did it is the point. And try and put yourself in the place of the disciples. They've been with Jesus. He just got rejected in his hometown. And they've seen him cast out demons, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 5. They've seen him do this. But now he says, now you're going to go cast out evil spirits. Okay. Pair up, two by two. Is it like get with your buddy? I don't know. Odds and evens, paper, rock, scissors. I don't know how they figured it out. Two by two. We're going to send you out, and you're going to cast out evil spirits. Imagine that's you. And then he gives them instructions. So read the first part of verse 8. He just said at the end of verse 7, you're going to cast out evil spirits. Then verse 8, and he gives them instructions. Pause. Don't read the next part. What do you expect him to say next? I think this is kind of funny, actually. Like, if I'm one of those guys, I'm thinking, I think if you tell me that I'm going to cast out evil spirits, and then you give me instructions, you're going to tell me how to cast out evil spirits. But instead, he tells them what to pack. <laughs> like, I'm not interested in whether I get to wear boxers or not and I get to have a toothbrush, okay? I want to know when that dude's head starts spinning, what do I do? But these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. How about a sword? We're coming into contact with evil spirits. Oh, just a staff will be good. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Okay, no money in my belt. And the way that I think, then can I put money in my sock? Oh, I can't wear socks because they're sandals. Oh, but I'm a dad, so I can wear socks with sandals. <laughs> Just sandals, he says. Just want you to wear sandals. What he's saying to them is that you're going to take such minimal provisions. I don't want you trusting in your provisions. Don't even take any money. I want you living by faith. And he doesn't tell them how to cast out the spirits. There's not a magic formula. Do you know what they need to do? When you encounter the situation, you trust me. And then I'm going to show up. And then you're going to have a God story about how you depended upon me. But it's not until you get in the situation. And you know what it says? It says in verse 12 and 13, they went out and they did it. And how did you see it? Because you can always see faith. They preached the gospel of repentance. That's the same thing John the Baptist preached in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's the same thing that Jesus himself preached in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent, the kingdom has come. It's the same thing that you and I are told to preach by Jesus as his last words before he leaves this place. Luke chapter 24, verses 26 through 28. Forgiveness and repentance are going to be preached, whether you do it or not. It's going to happen to all the nations. That's our message. We all have the same. If you want to know what it looks like to live by faith, to live by faith doesn't mean you jump out of an airplane and hope God shows up and rescues you. It doesn't mean you just make some ridiculous decision and go, it's by faith, it's by faith. No, sometimes it's by stupidity. Amen. To live by faith is to share the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of repentance, which means all of us are headed for destruction. All of us are headed down a path where we're sinners. And so we're going to face the wrath of God because God's sinless. He can't have sin in his presence. So we're going to face the wrath of God. What is sin? Since you do your own thing. Since you think you know what's right. Sin is rebellion against God. And we all do it. But God is gracious. He's provided another way. It's through his son Jesus and we turn. That's repentance. We turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And that's the message we all preach, that Jesus died as, as a substitute in our place on the cross for our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved on himself. And that's the message you preach, the message I preach, the message they preach, that John the Baptist preached, that Jesus himself preached. That's the message. And so if you're not sharing that message, you're not living by faith. To live by faith is not to jump out of an airplane. To live by faith is to share the message of repentance with those that are lost and on their way to hell. And you can see that kind of faith. You can see it because it gets lived out. 
It gets lived out in our actions. It gets lived out with our talents. It gets used in our, with our money. We say it with our words. You think, I love the story in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, there are these four guys, and they've got a friend he can't even walk. And they hear about this Jesus who can heal people and do all this stuff. And, and they show up at this house where Jesus is teaching. But the house is so packed, they can't even get in the door. Now, here's what many of us would say with our own theology, that real practically, not what the Bible teaches, just how we act. Well, it wasn't God's will that we bring this guy here because, or else we'd be able to just walk up to Jesus. It'd be easy. But they face an obstacle and I'm so glad they don't have that terrible theology. And so they decide to think innovatively. And so what they do is they're going to overcome the obstacle and they work harder. And so they go and they climb up on the roof with a grown man. They put a gr- who, How big is this guy? They take this grown man. They get him up on the roof. They pull back the tiles on the ceiling. They must have come up with some kind of pulley system. And they lower this guy down in front of Jesus. And then look at what it says in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus says. That Jesus looks up and he sees their faith. He saw their, not just the guy who's laying on the mat's faith, he saw their faith. I imagine he's looking in the eyes of the four dudes on the roof. And he's, you can see faith because it has actions. James says it like this in James chapter 2 and verse 26. says the body without the soul is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You live it out. That's how you see faith. And so you go through and you think about heroes of the faith. You read Hebrews chapter 11. You see they did something. They lived it out. You can see faith. It's personal. It is not private. It's something that's lived out in each one of our lives. It's something that we say with our words. George Mueller, he's a, an evangelist. A lot of times people just talk about him because he cared for orphans. He was actually an evangelist, a famous evangelist. And the reason why he's famous is because of his dependence upon God. But when he's interviewed about dependence upon God, he would say back, I don't have the gift of faith. I just have ordinary Christian faith. And a lot of people think it was his heart for orphans that caused him to start orphanages. And he's got famous stories. There's anecdotal stories. Maybe you've heard the one. There's one that's oftentimes well-documented. It's told all the time where he actually sat one of the orphanages down to pray for breakfast. They didn't have any food in the house. And he told these kids, thank God for the food that he's going to provide for you. And while they were praying, the baker from town showed up and dropped off enough food for all the kids to eat. And the milk cart broke down in front of the orphanage and then gave them the milk because he didn't want it to go bad. God just provided. And he started five orphanages, ministered over 10,000, talk about on Father's Day, fathered over 10,000 different orphans as he trusted his heavenly father for what happened. But when he was asked why he started the orphanages, let me tell you in his words what he said. I think we have it and put up on the screen. It says, uh, the three chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are, one, this is George Mueller's own words, that God may be glorified, should he be pleased to furnish me with the means and it's being seen that it's not a vain thing to trust in him and that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. Let me put that in modern day language. That if God provides the things that we're trusting him to provide, that other people would be strengthened in their faith and they would trust him that he can really provide on a daily basis. Not just some stories back in the Bible. That's the number one reason why he started. It doesn't even say anything about an orphan. Number one reason why he started an orphanage. Number two, it wasn't so that they get bread and milk. Number two is the spiritual welfare of the fatherless and motherless children. He wanted them to come to Christ. Number three, their temporal welfare. The stories we oftentimes tell about George Mueller was the third reason for why he started an orphanage. Second reason, he wanted them to come to Christ. First reason was so that you and I and every other child of God would be strengthened in our faith. So he lived out a faith that you could see. If you're going to live out a faith that people can see, 
then you need to do what they're doing in this passage. Live on mission for God, which includes sharing the gospel of Christ. It's not just for evangelists. There's no such thing in the Bible as the gift of evangelism. There's an office of evangelism. There are evangelists, but we're all given the responsibility to evangelize. It's our mission. And so let me say this statement as clear and slowly as I can. I know sometimes I talk fast. If you're not sharing the gospel verbally with other people, you are not living by faith. That's what they do. They go out, they share the gospel. So who are you sharing the gospel with? Who's your one? Not that you're just praying for, but you're telling. And fathers, who are you telling your kids? Pray for this coworker. Pray for this neighbor. Pray for this family member. Pray for your brother or sister. Pray for who is it you want to see come to Christ? That's living by faith. And then what happens next in this passage is really interesting. I'm just going to read it to you because the illustration's right there. Mark tells it to us. What Mark does is he tells these about these 12 guys going out on mission. Then he gives an illustration of what it looks like to live on mission by talking about John the Baptist. There's only two times in Mark that a passage of Scripture is not about Jesus. Both of them are about John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist's legacy was that he pointed people to Christ. When you live a life of faith, you leave a legacy of faith. And that's what John the Baptist does. And the technique that's used here from a literary standpoint is called the sandwich technique. And what happened is in verses 7 through 12 is that Mark has told us about people living on mission. And then it's almost like he goes and tells this other story. And you can wonder, why does he do that? And then in verse 30, he updates us again about the story. He doesn't tell us about the results of the apostles going out and doing this until verse 30. So there's a sandwich. And so forget gluten-free argument right now, all right? Peace and bread. Gluten-free bread for, your, for those, I don't want to lose anybody. Gluten-free bread, then turkey and cheese in the middle, then another piece of bread. So the piece of bread is, he starts a story, then he tells another story, and then he wraps it back up, but they actually go together. And the middle part's making a point of the first and last part. And we've seen this multiple other times in Mark. We saw it when Jesus' family came to bind him in Mark chapter 3, and then he tells a story about the strong man, how he ties up the strong man. And then he tells at the end, let me tell you who my family is. He's tying it back together. So those who live on mission, those are my brothers and sisters. And then the last week we saw in Mark chapter 5, remember Jairus comes to Jesus, says, come heal my daughter, and then they get interrupted. It's almost like, why that parenthetical story about this woman? Is it just to frustrate Jairus? No, he's showing not only is he stronger than suffering, he's stronger than death. And then it goes back to the situation with the dead child. He raises that child from the dead. Here he talks about living on mission, and what he's doing with John the Baptist is not just this historical information about John the Baptist. He's showing, here's what it looks like to live a life on mission. John the Baptist did that, and everything about his life pointed people to Jesus, even his death. And it's contrasted as starkly as it possibly can with a man named Herod. It's Herod Antipas, if you're going to read historically about this. It's not Herod the Great that we saw earlier. That's his dad in the Bible. And this is a guy who lives for himself. This is a guy who does all the values of our culture. This is a guy who lives for greed, for reputation, for power. In the story that we're going to read, it's got every political element of a scandal that used to be not okay. Lust, marital issues, power struggles, like all this stuff's happening here. Let me just read it to you. Verse 14 through 16 says this. King Herod, he wasn't even a king. Mark's mocking him probably here, or at least using the title that he tried to make people use of him. He was a tetrarch. He was a ruler of a segment of Rome that was given to him after his dad died. So he didn't really have his own kingdom. King Herod heard about this, these 12 disciples going out. And he associates what they're doing with Jesus because they're pointing people to Jesus. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous power is at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and so others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. This is condemnation on the people in Nazareth, too, because even other people that don't know him hardly at all, at least they think there's something special about him. 
He's a prophet. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Miracles are happening. They don't understand he's the Messiah. But they're closer than the people in Nazareth. Verse 16, but Herod heard about this. He said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Herod had a guilty conscience. If you've ever had something where a memory comes back from your past, smell, sound, something happened that just triggers it, and you had forgotten about it, it's there. That's, that's the kind of thing. Herod's, I'm hearing about this. Jesus. Oh, no, I remember I killed John the Baptist, and so he associates it with John the Baptist. And then what happens is that Mark gives us in verses 17 through 29 something that is, it's not happening in this moment. It's like a flashback. Like if you've ever watched a movie that they, all of a sudden they go back in time, like when somebody was a kid, or they'll change the lighting or the sound or the fuzzy edges on the, on the movie. That's what's happening here in verse 17. Four, he's explaining why Herod feels so panicky that John the Baptist raised for the dead. Four, verse 17, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, that's his wife, but notice how it's mentioned. His brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. And if you really start to dig into the family tree here, what you find out is Herodias is actually his niece. This is an incestuous, lustful marriage to his brother's wife. He got her to divorce. He divorced his wife to marry her, got her to divorce his brother, and they got married, and it's his niece. So we haven't come up with anything new, by the way. And here's why this is problematic. Verse 18, for John had been saying, that means repeatedly saying more than one time, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so what John is doing is he's standing on the truth. What John's doing is he's, he's confronting sin. He's preaching the message he continually is preaching. You know, he's the one who says, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. What is he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's, saying, he's doing it here. And so what he did is he's preaching repentance. Even though this person's powerful, Herod, there's times when people get, they talk about being able to kill somebody, they don't actually have the power. Herod actually has the power to kill somebody. And so John knows he could be martyred for doing this. It's like the guys we talked about last week. Remember I told you about the one guy, the Iranian guy who was confronting the Iranian leaders because they were forcing his kids and he was a Christian to, to learn Islamic teachings and he didn't want him to learn that and so they put him in jail and threatened him with death. Or the guy who was in Syria, and this was just last year, in Syria, whose kid was being tortured in front of him, and they were saying, if you just recant of your faith, you just deny Jesus. Well, stop beating him. They cut the kid's fingers off in front of dad. He's, and the dad wouldn't recant. He got crucified. That's in 2015. John knows that could happen here. What he's doing would be the equivalent of standing before some leader today and saying, listen, what, that is sin. Like, I, I don't know all about Donald Trump. I've read that he owns strip clubs. Hey, you're, you're funding human trafficking. Like, we want us to vote for you as Christians. One of the things that we're fighting against, you're funding it. Or Hillary Clinton. You're killing babies. Okay, you're, you're, that's genocide. Like, there are millions of people you're wiping out. And what happened here is that John probably preached that publicly, and then it got back to Herod, and so Herod called him in, and Herod said, yeah, that's what I said. And you have an opportunity to repent. You can turn. But look, he kept saying it. He kept preaching and confronting the sin. And so Herodias, you got to divorce her. You're not even legitimately married to her. You need to leave that woman. But Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Here's why. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So it was really the presence of God in his life that caused him to fear him. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. It's like torn inside. Yet he liked to listen to him. 
How many people do we know like that? It's like this perverse desire to have your toes stepped on at church. It's like you come and they love preaching. They, they confront. Let me tell you something. There is no fruit of conviction. There is no fruit of guilt. There is only a fruit of repentance. And so this guy loves hearing John teach. I'll listen to sermons like a sermon monger. I'll listen to sermons all day long, but I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to turn for my sin. He loves hearing John preach, but he won't actually do what John's saying and turn from his sin and turn to God. And you can, if you study this, you can find that you can come up with all the reasons why Herod is the way that he is. And Herod could lay on the couch at his counselor's office and talk about what his dad was like. His dad was Herod the Great, so Ali wasn't the first one to come up with that title. Herod the Great called himself that. And if you want to know if the apple doesn't far, far, fall far from the tree, read Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great's the one who killed all those babies in Bethlehem to try and kill Jesus. And what's happening here with Herod and John the Baptist? It's like a re replay. And you see with all the lust and the womanizing and all the stuff this guy does in his life? Well, go to Herod the Great. He had 10 wives. And so you can know why Herod Antipas did what he did. But let me tell you something. Knowing why you sin is not a solution to your sin. Knowing why you sin is for sure not an excuse for your sin. The only solution is Jesus, the one that John the Baptist pointed to. And the way you get to Jesus is by repenting. Oh, I want God more than I want the sin. And so you turn from the sin, you turn to Jesus. And that's what he wouldn't do. And so what we see in the next verses is a man forfeit his soul. Look, finally the opportune time came on his birthday. Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in, not his daughter, it's his wife's daughter, and danced, she pleased Herod to sexual euphemism and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Ironically, didn't have a kingdom to give, but he's being, trying to be generous here. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. She knew. This is a plan. At once, the girl hurried to the king with the request. I want you to give me, and she adds, right now, the head of John the Baptist, and you see how twisted she is too, on a platter. Verse 26, the king was greatly distressed. The word that's used there for greatly distressed, the only other place that's used in the New Testament is of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't want to do this. But he fears people more than he wants to be right with God. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately... He sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Number 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had been taught. So here's what happened when they went on a mission. Here's what it looks like to live on mission. I mean, cost you your life. You want to leave a legacy of faith? Then your life should point people to Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. Well, I'm not even worthy to untie us. You've got a contrast of a guy who self-proclaims himself king, and then you've got another guy who says, I'm not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. And then Jesus says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist has been born of a woman, but you have an opportunity to be the least in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. will be greater than John the Baptist. You look at, there's two legacies here. Everything about John, even his death. His death, there's two passion narratives in the book of Mark. One is John the Baptist, one is Jesus. John the Baptist is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. 
In both situations, innocent men, they don't say a word, led like a sheep before the shearer. Both stand before a political guy that's got no spine, no moral fabric, who vacillates and doesn't want to execute Pilate and Herod, but does it. And both of them point us to our salvation and the message of repentance. And I have no doubts about Herod. I, I bet you that at his funeral, his kids probably told some stories about him, anecdotal stories, you know, sentimental stories. But eternally, that man's rotting in hell. That's zero impact eternally. But John the Baptist leaves a legacy of faith. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? If all people can say about you is what team you liked, a couple sayings you had, that you can hit a golf ball down, down the fairway, if all I can say about you are those things, zero eternal impact. You want an impact to last for 100 years from now, it actually matters 1,000 years, 10,000 years from now. Where you're, impact your kid, disciple your children, and then they'll disciple there, and they'll have grandkids, and you'll be in eternity. If you want to have an eternal impact, you must live a life of faith. The great news is you're not dead. So you get to decide what kind of legacy you leave. The decision is before you. For some of it, it's a decision to repent. For others of you, it's to continue to make disciples and share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our church family. Thank you so much for the fathers in this room that disciple their kids, that, that, that teach them in the instructions, the training of the Lord. Thank you so much that those that live by faith, and I pray, I cry out for you right now, the blind hearts, the darkened hearts, those who don't see you, that don't know you, that might not even think they need you. God, I pray that you would pierce their hearts right now. I pray you'd bring people to the place of repentance, of turning from their own way, of whatever's blocking faith from, from flowing in their life. God, I pray you give them, to convict them of sin, give them the gift of faith, have them turn to you and repent of their sin. I pray for believers that are sinning, that need to turn to you. I pray you'd have them turn to you right now. I pray for those of us who just messed up and we haven't been doing that we wouldn't just preach repentance, we'd live repentance. God, I pray for myself, I wouldn't be a hypocrite, I sin all the time. I pray even in my sin you'd make your son Jesus known, please. God, have your hand on our fathers. Have us be a church of men who desire to disciple their kids and have, have a special blessing on those moms that have to do all the work because of a non-believing husband or because the husband's gone or dead or whatever the story is, God, I pray that you give them comfort and grace today. And I pray for every person that heard these words, a father and not a father, in a father role and not a father role. God, I pray you'd encourage us to live on mission for you and to walk by faith with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.